This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Welcome, Talk Catholic, the website.com, your host, Tim Kilcoin. No agendas here, just the straight and narrow, through Mary to Jesus, the Catholic faith proclaimed and preserved. Hope to see you here every week. TalkCatholic.com with Tim Kilcoyne as we approach St. Patty's Day. And for those of Irish extraction, or for that matter, any extraction, I have a suggestion. You might want to grab a DVD of Ireland from an aerial perspective. They have them. And then put it on your big screen, turn down the volume, and put on some beautiful music. And get lost in the green. And it'll get you rejuvenated, as we probably need to be at this stage of winter time. But in any event, we are going to continue on with our book review, You Shall Stand Firm, with Father William Casey in a few minutes, and I will continue here to browse through the Synod on Synodality and a working document on the continental stage of this Synod. And I'm working out of a couple of sources here. One is an article from Catholic Family News by Matt Gaspers entitled Continuous Aggiornamento, Synod Seeks to Preserve Precious Legacy of Vatican II, and also a uh, video by Taylor Marshall and Matt Gaspers entitled Pope Francis's Synod as Perpetual Vatican II. That's a uh, an excellent video summary of much of what I'm going through here with my own commentary. And we gave a little bit of an intro relative to the overarching theme of the Synod. We said is enlarging the space of your tent, a reference to Scripture, Isaiah 54, verse 2, and the phrase radical inclusion is found very much throughout the document, as well as words like hospitality and shared belonging, dialogue, listening, etc. We've heard these words as kind of a, uh, a snapshot of uh, Pope Francis's pontificate. Uh, in fact, in the video with Matt Gaspers and Taylor Marshall, Taylor Marshall does a spontaneous on-the-spot sermon that everybody should hear because it captures all too likely the essence of common sermons of our time. They put together lots of syllables and long words, but in the end, you almost don't have a clue what they just said. And to be bluntly honest, I think I can take a shot at this. An all-too-typical sermon theme at Mass on Sunday, an Enorvis Ordo Mass for sure. So may I give that spontaneous sermon right here and now. Brothers and sisters, we really have got to work harder on coming together and try to listen to each other. And by doing so, we'll be able to hearken to the words of Vatican II on being a listening church as the people of God that we are. And we don't want to be setting up boundaries with anyone. We need to be as inclusive as possible as families should be. And we want to enter more deeply into this dialogue with one another so that we can have a better sense of who we are as disciples of Christ. And unless we're going to be honest with ourselves about 
about intensifying our prayer, perhaps, then we'll probably never be ready to sit down at the table to do this communal sharing. And this is so much a part of what our Lord wants for us that we would be with him at the Last Supper, our supper, every Sunday, sharing with one another round the table. And round and round she goes. Is that not what families do? And, well, we want a wide and big tent so that we can have a big table. So let's not put up all those discriminatory walls of injustice like racism and trying to claim something for ourselves, but rather be open to those and truly celebrate diversity more than a slogan. Those unlike ourselves. Ladies and gentlemen, are you kind of getting the theme here? (laughs) This is spontaneous on my part. And I must admit, I am thinking of a particular parish and uh, the priest goes on and on like that endlessly. And you're walking out scratching your head. Sadly, it it does kind of capture the essence of too many sermons on a Sunday that go on and on and on and on like that. What did he just say? It's all you can say. It's almost a science to this what one could call psychotheological babble. You notice that there's no mention of sacrifice, especially the holy sacrifice of the Mass. That's been turned into the people of God, which is a, a major change in emphasis from the overwhelming 2,000-plus-year deposit of faith. This was post-Vatican II language. And more specifically, from the article in Catholic Family News, Matt Gasper shares the following language exactly. Walking together as the people of God requires us to recognize the need for continual conversion, individual and communal. On the institutional and pastoral level, this conversion translates into an equally continuous reform of the church, its structures and style, in the wake of the drive for continuous agiamento, the precious legacy of the Second Vatican Council, to which we are called to look as we celebrate its 60th anniversary. Can you already hear the echoes of my spontaneous sermon? The vacuous nature of the words themselves. But they're not all completely vacuous. They do hold meaning, not authentic Catholic meaning. Let me elaborate. So there is a reference here for continual conversion, individual and communal. But they don't go into exactly what that conversion is towards or requires. What they really do mean is a kind of continuous conversion to the world, not to authentic Catholic doctrine 2,023 years and ongoing and unchanging, not a continuous conversion to the Ten Commandments as they are articulated to Moses himself, and to be passed on unchanging from one generation to the next, not a continuous conversion to prayer, ongoing, devotionals, the sacramental life of the church, the conversion of one's psyche and heart, for total readiness to meet your Lord on Judgment Day, that's the kind of conversion that is completely omitted from this document. Their need for continual conversion, individual and communal, is basically saying that we're all in flux. As it says, the continuous reform of the church is necessary too. So the church is just going to change with the zeitgeist of the modern era, the times in which she lives, and that's what you get for a church. Oh, that's That's just beautiful, ladies and gentlemen. Lots of continuity there with what Christ handed on to Peter. Matt Gaspers goes on, Beginning with John the 23rd, popes have used the Italian word, agiomento, bringing up to date, that means, 
and similar language to describe the fundamental purpose of Vatican II. During his speech at the opening of the Council, for example, Pope John said that by bringing herself up to date where required, the Church will make men, families, and people really turn their minds to heavenly things. Really. So therefore, the logical deduction of that, given the fact that this happened way back in the 1960s, is that there must be an upward spiral of morality at work uh, since that time. More people becoming upright in character and truly holy. Where? And in fact, if you just look at a Catholic index of statistics and virtually from almost any angle, it's all downward. Marriages are down. Church attendance is down radically from that time. Seminary enrollment is down. Parishes closing by the bundles. Thousands. What happened to the heavenly gaze? Gasper says, without using the term, John XXIII described the essence of Ajumento throughout his speech, which is characterized by a rather naive confidence in modern man and an attitude of openness and leniency towards the world, which scripture tells us is seated in wickedness. First book of John, chapter 5, verse 19. In the present order of things, divine providence is leading us to a new order of human relations, which by men's own efforts and even beyond their very expectations are directed toward the fulfillment of God's superior and inscrutable designs. And everything, even human differences, leads to the greater good of the church. This, ladies and gentlemen, is the essence of the quote-unquote only used constantly by the new reformers, the spirit of Vatican II. And I think you can see it is couched in extremely more than naive terms, a pop psychology that man is good and he's just going to blossom like a flower. This was the essence of modern psychology taking over the seminaries in the mid to late 1960s. And it completely decimated the seminaries because no longer were we using the term sin to describe an age-old condition that is indeed original. Are we just going to reinvent this wheel over and over again? Can we learn anything from church history or modern human history that there's a fallen condition out there and don't get your hopes up that your faith is going to be supported by people. I've often said, I've never based my faith on people. I will be extremely disappointed. My faith is divinely inspired, given from above, and I hold on to it, regardless of how people behave. There is none of this reverence for divine revelation, is what it's called, in this working document, which is a new vision for the Catholic Church by heretics. It is an outrage, ladies and gentlemen, and do share such with your local pastor because everyone needs to get on the phone lines to the architects of this synod. Listen to this next paragraph. It reminds you of the vacuous sermon expounded earlier. The Christian, Catholic, and apostolic spirit of the whole world expects a step forward toward a doctrinal penetration and formation of consciousness in faithful and perfect conformity to the authentic doctrine, which, however, should be studied and expounded through the methods of research and through the literary forms of modern thought. <laughs> oh, oh, I do, I, do I need to say anything? You know they're talking to themselves right now. The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of faith is one thing, and the way in which it is presented is another. Indeed. And we would simply ask for historical and intellectual coherence, not to mention continuity, with the unchanging teachings of the Church. The Church has always opposed these errors, 
called the opinions of men by Pope John, frequently she has condemned them with the greatest severity. Nowadays, however, the spouse of Christ prefers to make use of the medicine of mercy rather than that of severity, which, of course, ladies and gentlemen, is code for we condemn nothing. There will be no condemnations of human behavior. Such is uncharitable. And finally, in the last paragraph for today, Matt Gasper's relays from the document, not certainly that there is a lack of fallacious teaching, opinions, and dangerous concepts to be guarded against and dissipated, but these are so obviously in contrast with the right norm of honesty and have produced such lethal fruits that by now it would seem that men of themselves are inclined to condemn them. <laughs> Forgive my chuckle, but this reminds me of Rogerian psychology on steroids, as usual, ever so popular amongst baby boom professors of the 1960s and 70s who just so happen to be writing these documents right now. Carl Rogers, psychologist of the humanistic potential movement, was the new guru. Do read William Kirk Kilpatrick's work on the transition from age-old wisdom to the psychology of the 60s, 70s, and onward. And it basically represented this completely naive understanding of human nature as utterly good, needing nothing, especially not moral prohibitions, to impede its development, but rather give it utter license freedom to blossom into the flower it was meant to be. Can you hear echoes of flower power from the hippy-dippy movement of the 60s? They're going on the premise that somehow it's just intuitive to men and women themselves to condemn contraception and stem cell research on embryos and cloning and all other kinds of abominations, transgender madness. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll get it ourselves. We don't have to have a lecture by Holy Mother Church. Okay, I can't. I gotta shift gears. Enough truly is enough. We will get back to our analysis of the Synod on Synodality next week. Let us continue on with our book review by Father William Casey, You Shall Stand Firm. We are in the chapter, The Priest a marked man. And a nice synopsis of our last session is the following, which would be a reminder to the Synod of what a priest is. We are ordained to be other Christs. The church does not ordain the priest to be an ecclesial branch manager. We are ordained first to be heralds of the gospel, the preachers of God's holy word without compromise. We are ordained to be the ministers of the sacraments, which are the very means of our salvation that our Lord bought and paid for with his own blood on Calvary. We we are called to be instruments of God's mercy and healers in a wounded world, especially in the confessional. We are intercessors for the people of God through our life of prayer and our works of charity. We are called to work and to pray, primarily for the greater honor and glory of God, for the salvation of souls, and to build up the body of Christ, which is the church. Not psychologists curious about your feelings, but other Christ pointing the way. This is WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. We'll be right back. We need to remind priests what they were called to be. Father Casey makes it pretty clear. Every priest has the obligation and the mission to pray and to work, not for personal gain, but for the salvation of souls, not for his own honor and glory, but for the honor and glory of God, not to build himself up, but to build up the body of Christ, not to do his own will, but to do the will of the one who sent him, and not to spread his own ideas, but to spread the word of God. That is the content of God's revelation of humanity, the definitive doctrinal and moral teachings of 
of the Catholic Church, which have not changed for 2,000 years. We possess and defend the fullness of truth, the guarantor of which is the Holy Spirit. The priest comes not to be served or to serve himself, but to be the servant of all. As I was listening to Father Casey's beautiful theology of the priesthood, I am reminded of a great Catholic journalist that we lost just recently, George Neumeyer. And George did a lot of the dirty work in digging up stuff relative to scandal within the church at the highest levels. And I'm sure he is a most hated man within all too many circles amongst the clergy. And he did what he did out of his great love for Holy Mother Church and the priesthood. As he made the comment in one particular interview, this isn't their church, it's God's church. It's not ever going to be easy, whether it be priests lifting up one another in fraternal charity and correction, or the laity doing the same for a priest or a fellow layman or woman. Fraternal correction to remind us who we are as baptized and confirmed as lay people and who the priests are as ordained ministers of God in persona Christi. Never easy, but most necessary, and if you don't do it, It's just a big downward spiral, either for your domestic church, the family, and or Holy Mother Church Universal. May God lift up George Neumeyer in his mercy that perpetual light truly shine upon this most heroic man of God. Well, the case he goes on beautifully. The priest, by virtue of his reception of the sacrament of holy orders, enters into a mystical marriage with the bride of Christ the church, which is the virgin, bride, and mother. The priest is called to forsake the joys of marriage and family life for the sake of the kingdom of God. The priest has no children of his own so that he can be a spiritual father to all, a father in the supernatural order. Whenever we talk about the priesthood and vocations, we must always take up the issue of celibacy, freely renouncing the joys of marriage and family life for this kingdom of God. There is a great misunderstanding today about celibacy. We hear people say all the time that if only the church would do away with celibacy for priests, we would have a flood of new vocations. To these people, I say, consider the Eastern Orthodox Church, which has never had a tradition of priestly celibacy, yet suffers from a more pressing shortage of priests than we do. The issue here is that secular society scoffs at celibacy, which is a dirty word in a world where hedonism is the prevailing mentality. Celibacy makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to worldly-minded people, and it makes no sense in a promiscuous society that makes a god of sex. Why the tradition of celibacy? It is because it is both biblical and scriptural based on the very teaching and example of Jesus Christ himself. When we speak of celibacy, we say it is a time-tested and time-proven benefit to the church as it allows the priest to devote the best of his time, his talent, his efforts, and his energy to building up the body of Christ so that he can be a spiritual father to all. That is why celibacy will always be part of the church's tradition and discipline. And I might add, ladies and gentlemen, as a single guy all my life, never married and not living a promiscuous, frivolous, playboyish, or perverted lifestyle, I've got good news to all single people. You are indeed called to the same celibate, chaste lifestyle until marriage if God calls you to it. And so not only does the priest offer up his time and talents in honor of marriage and the sacrifice and atonement for sin, but so do us lay people called to the royal priesthood of God. Not the sacramental, but the royal. 
priesthood of all believers. The single person. This vocation for the single person to love as a priest loves offers himself or herself up also for the body of Christ in reparation and atonement for sin and to be a father or sister to all in service. This absolutely needs to be affirmed, and then we'd have a much better understanding of who the priest is called to be. Father Casey finishes up by telling us what the priest isn't. He says, what did Jesus do? He instituted the sacrament of holy orders. What did Jesus not do? He did not ordain women, and neither did the apostles, nor the saints, nor did God in the Old Testament and the Levitical priesthood. The ordination of women is impossible because of the very nature of priesthood itself. As I have already mentioned, the priest is ordained to be another Christ, Altar Christus. A priest is not just a representative of Christ, but he is ordained to be a sacramental representation of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the new Adam, and the spotless male Passover lamb by God's explicit command. This is not a matter of discrimination. It's a matter of God's mysterious sovereign choices. We hear it sometimes said, if Jesus were with us today, he would ordain women, because back in the time in the New Testament, he was bound by social customs. This is simply not true. If that had been true, it could have been said that our Lord was acting out of human respect, and that's not possible precisely because unjust discrimination is a sin. God cannot sin. We should also remember that the Roman, Greek, and ancient pagan worlds were full of priestesses, so the argument falls flat on its face for several reasons. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, our Lord was not acting in accord with the zeitgeist of his time. In fact, He never does. It's always on his time according to his desires and designs. Father Casey says, We must remember that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Both the calling to the holy priesthood and the grace to respond to it and persevere in it have their source in God. Pope St. John Paul II used to say, The call of priesthood is the voice of God that speaks to the heart, and it is the pearl of great price. It is a gift from his church to his people, and it demands total abandonment to God's will. Priesthood is a gift that makes total demands on the man who says yes to its divine call. As far as I'm concerned, this call has never been more demanding than it is right now, and especially in an atmosphere of scandal, broken trust, and infidelity. In all honesty, I have to tell you how much respect and admiration I have for those young men who come into the priesthood today. When I was ordained all those years ago, it was so much easier, so much more convenient, and far more socially respectable to be a priest than it is today. A young man who wants to be a priest today has got to have not just a deep love for Christ and a deep faith, but the virtues of courage and fortitude. As the late Father Benedict Rochelle said, for a young man to want to be a priest now, he's got to be madly in love with Christ and his church. And finally, regarding the vocation crisis, he says, don't expect the solution to come from the clergy. It must come from the laity. It must come from the spiritual life, prayers, fidelity, and the generosity of Catholic families without whom we have no future. As St. John Paul II once said, the family must educate the children for life in such a way that one may fully perform his or her role according to the vocation received from God.
Pray, pray, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers into his vineyard. Can we think of a better reason to honor St. Patrick this week and pray to St. Pat for my musical ministry comeback, a three-year hiatus ready to end on St. Patrick's Day itself for the Oblates of Mary Immaculate. And I have no doubt my dad will be playing his accordion in heaven for Clinton Mass, a town he loves so well. This is WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. Keep the jig going and don't forget St. Bridget Ida. Let your light shine. That is what it's all about here at WQPH Radio 89.3 FM. But we need to hear your story. You want your voice to be his voice. That is making the faith known to others. Please, my number is 877-625-3727. Tim Kilcoin, TalkCatholic.com. St. Mother Teresa told us, your ministry is your work right where you are. Grab on to this microphone. God bless.